Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to give us another morning. Uh, Father, we thank you that you've brought us here and that you've brought us here for a purpose of opening your word together and investigating these doctrinal truths uh, that you've you've assigned uh, to us for this hour and for the content for the exam. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us in the ways that we need to be helped for understanding, for wisdom with these things. And, Father, that this would not just be a matter of increasing our head knowledge, but, Father, that our hearts would be engaged in this and that, Lord, it would lead us to worship, that it would lead us to greater obedience and greater effort to be conformed to your glory through the energy that you provide by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) All right, so union with Christ and synergistic sanctification. Uh, As you can see in your notes there, these are the two questions, question 18 and question 20 from the theology exam. Uh, Question 18, describe the doctrine of union with Christ, explaining its biblical basis and then implications for Christian living. Uh, And then question 20, explain the synergistic nature of sanctification, being sure to describe the relationship between God's grace and moral effort in the Christian life. Uh, and I don't know if that's, this may be the question 20 probably, the, the question on the exam that has some words in it that make you go, huh? <laughs> what do I have to write about? Uh, but let me talk, and we'll get to that, let me talk just for a moment about why these two questions are together uh, in this hour. And part of that is just because we need to find a way to cover all the questions, so we need to squeeze some together. But there is definitely a relationship between these two doctrines, and so that's why we put them together going back. I think the first time we actually did this track with the new exam was 2016, so that goes back to the first year we had this at Calvary Bible Church. So that was the first time we combined these questions. Uh, And this quote from Sinclair Ferguson, which is there in your notes, uh, gets pretty directly to the relationship between the two. He says this, Uh, that union with Christ is the heart of sanctification, the soul of devotion, and the strength of holiness. Uh, So I don't know if you guys, are you guys familiar with thinking about indicatives versus imperatives in Scripture and the relationship between the two? I see some nodding. So indicative is just like the mood of a verb that is a statement of fact. So indicatives are just facts, truths about what God has done. That's usually how we think about indicatives in this context, is the gospel is the indicative. And so in this situation, really, the relationship between these two things is union with Christ is more the indicative, and then it goes with an imperative or a command, an urge for us to take action, and that is synergistic sanctification. And so that's what Sinclair Ferguson is getting at with this quote, is that uh, as we make effort in sanctification and to be devoted to Christ and in pursuing strength and holiness, it is our union with Christ, the reality of our union with Christ, that makes that possible. Uh, second quote here, the death that Christ died is the death to which I also am called, and the death to which I am called is my entry point to union with Christ and life at its fullness. And that comes from Milton Vincent's A Gospel Primer, which is a, a great little book that's mostly about uh, indicatives, just gospel truths that should fuel us and comfort us and sustain us in our walk with Christ. But what, uh, what Vincent is pointing out with this particular quote is that as we engage in mortification of sin, or that's another way of talking about sanctification, we actually experience our union with Christ as we identify with him in his death and enjoy the holiness that he won for us because of our union with him. 
So again, just a couple of quotes there uh, to get us thinking about the relationship between the two, and we'll see more of that as we go along, go through our content, and go through the relevant uh, scripture texts. Now, before we get to scripture texts, uh, it says first we need to describe the doctrine of union, and uh, that's going to be something that sort of generally happens as I go through these notes here, uh, but you want to include definitions or at least thinking in your exam response that characterizes uh, these doctrinal truths accurately, defines them. Uh, so the first one, and John Frame is frequently helpful uh, in kind of fresh ways, uh, and so this, this I think, uh, fits that. John Frame says, Union with Christ is in Scripture the most general way of characterizing Jesus' work of salvation. Jesus saves us by uniting us to himself. So that's John Frame's definition of union with Christ. And then he gives two sort of aspects of that that I think really make it comprehensive. That, first of all, we are one with Christ in his humiliation. Uh, and that's when we talk about identifying with Christ in his death and saying, he died the death I deserved. I'm united with him in his death. He he de- doesn't deserve that death. He, he He died it because of his union with me. But then on the flip side of that, we are one with Christ in his exaltation. So the fact that he's risen from the dead and he's glorified and raised to eternal life uh, means that with that, I get to be, like Paul talks about in Romans 8 especially, I get to be justified, I get to be sanctified, and I ultimately get to be glorified with Christ. So we're one with him in his humiliation, we're one with him in his exaltation. Uh, Burkhoff, a little bit older systematic theology, gives another, uh, maybe a little bit more wordy definition here. This union, union with Christ, may be defined as that intimate, vital, and that's a key word there, this is about life. And you see that again as we continue here. It's that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. And so you see some commonality between those two definitions, uh, some overlap, but also some distinction that can help us think through how to explain uh, the doctrine of union with Christ. Uh, so we want to explain it, and then secondly, we want to explain the biblical basis for the union. And by far, the most times you will find this doctrine referenced in Scripture is probably mostly in Paul's writings, where he talks about being in Christ and says one thing after another related to in Christ, in Christ. And that's what's being referenced in Bruce Demarest's uh, quote there, is all the places that it says in Christo, uh, that's just the Greek uh, transliteration for in Christ. And he says this, the en Christo and related expressions found in the Pauline writings, and this would expand even past that, not just Paul, do not embody a single idea, but are elastic phrases that embrace a wide range of meanings. And I point that out kind of in a cautionary way, just to say, don't go and look for everywhere it says in Christ and use that in your exam answer, because we're looking at a, for a more narrow uh situation of the usage of in Christ, and that's the second thing here, that the sense that concerns us here is that of incorporative union or identification with Christ. And so uh, rather than having to go look for those, and that may not make a whole lot of sense right off, uh, that'll sort of be illustrated as we go through, and I talk about the text that I've sort of selected to explain 
you have a long list of texts there that fit that second criterion so that uh, you'll have those accessible to you. You can think through them and see how they reflect uh, the type of in Christ you'd be looking for in your exam answer. Uh, so uh, we're just going to go through a selection. This isn't going to be everything in a list. I've given you more than I can possibly talk about, uh, but it's all data that could be useful to you in your exam. <clears throat> so we'll go through a few of these. Uh, here in John 14, um, and and this doctrine is really present uh, in the the time that Jesus spends with his disciples uh, the night before uh, his crucifixion. Uh, here in this context, he has just promised that when he goes away, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he says this, In that day, when I send the Spirit, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so this gets to a few things. In context, the fact that this comes with the sending of the Spirit, it's accomplished, it's affected by the work of the Spirit. Also, this in particular gets into the fact that this is a mutual indwelling. It's a mutual union. He says, you in me and I in you. So that is uh, one of those examples of in being in Christ, fitting that second sense uh, that Demarest was talking about. Uh, another one, and this one uh, is maybe even the most key, and this will come up again actually when we get to synergistic sanctification, Romans 8, verses 9 to 11. And notice how many times Paul uses uh, that construction here of union being in us uh, and the fact that it's connected with the Spirit and almost the interchangeability of Christ and the Spirit and God with this. He says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this is a mark, again, of the believer. The indwelling, the union with Christ is how God saves us. And so this is, it is a mark of the believer. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, so thinking back again to the first text from John 14, I mentioned it's a mutual indwelling, him in us and us in him. And that's important when we get here because it's not just about being in Christ, it's about Christ being in us. And that's the sense in which Paul keeps repeating himself here is in us. And again, you see, this is all here indicative. It's actually driving up to imperatives, what we do in response. And we'll see that again when we get to uh, synergistic sanctification. First uh, Corinthians 15, uh, and we, you'll see these texts come up more than once through this. Uh, here, uh, just pointing out the fact that uh, Paul states the same truth in fewer words and at the same time draws a parallel between our union with Adam and our union with Christ. So we understand theologically, and that's not part of this lecture, but that we died in Adam. Our condemnation is just based on Adam and our sin uh, in him as our father. But uh, the parallel truth, the hopeful truth, is that our union with Christ uh, can make us alive, can rescue us from that union with Adam in which we justly die. 
Uh, next up, we have Galatians 3. And this gets to the fact that our union with Christ also gives us union with one another. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So union with Christ gives us union with each other. Finally, we see uh, in Ephesians 1 that our union with Christ is the blessing for our election. It's the basis for our election from eternity past. Uh, And it's also for the outworking of that gracious election in our salvation and sanctification in this life. So it's both here in this text, Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. It's by virtue of our union with Christ that he has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, so our election is by, by, by virtue of our union with him, before the foundation of the world, that should, we should be holy and blameless before him. So again, that's all the text that I'm going to go through in any detail, but you have a longer list there in your notes that fit that same uh, sense that we're looking for in terms of what it means to be in Christ or for Christ to be in us. Uh, continuing in biblical data, Uh, And this is getting to be a pretty old picture. I've had it in these slides for a while. You guys recognize those guys? (laughs) That's that's back when Dan Kirk and Brent Osterberg were both... uh, Dan, of course, is still our senior pastor. Brent was associate pastor at Calvary at that time, and he's since gone and planted Living Living Hope Bible Church in Mansfield. Uh, But they were in... I think Tajikistan there. And uh, the remarkable thing... You guys see the remarkable thing about that picture? They are leaning on a vine... That's a vine, and that's I. I have never seen a vine that is like that. Uh, and if that's the way the vines were, and I don't know uh, whether that's the case, but Jesus refers to him being the vine and us being the branches. Uh, certainly, we do know this: that is there any life in a branch if it's not connected with the vine? No. And that's that's the main thrust of that. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on John 15, but that whole text. Uh, and I think I'm marked there, verses 1 to 17. Uh, that is just reflecting on the glory and the some of the implications, and I'll get to some of that uh, in a, in under implications, of this truth of our union with Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Because we are in him, we can ask the Father for anything that would be in keeping with his will for his branches, and he'll do it for us. So just a huge uh, benefit. And there are a number. I'm going to go through several illustrations here. These illustrations just help us understand different realities. Illustrations are helpful in that way. Different aspects of our reality uh, as being united with Christ. Second one, uh, back in the context of John 14, uh, and then 17 also, that uh, our union with Christ is likened to the union between Jesus and the Father. Uh, Jesus says in John 14, verse 20, just a few verses after the last one we looked at in John 14, in that day, same construction there, you will know that I am, oh, this is the same verse, I'm sorry. I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This time just emphasizing the fact, uh, do I have that there? No, there we go. Uh, Emphasizing the fact that our union with Christ, his union with us, reflects, and Jesus appeals to this a lot in the high priestly prayer in John 17, reflects that eternal union that Jesus has uh, as the second person of the Trinity with the Father, and we could say by extrapolation with the Spirit, but he's pointing specifically here to his union with the Father. So that's uh, an analogy, an illustration 
of our union with him is his union with the Father. Uh, next up, we see uh, our union with Christ is likened unto a building, the imagery of a building, and this happens in Ephesians 2, it happens in 1 Corinthians 3, happens in 1 Peter 2. Uh, in Ephesians 2, verses 20 and 22, Paul ties this all together by describing how we are like a building which Christ is the cornerstone, uh, which is the first stone laid to make sure that the foundation and all the other parts of the building are stable and true. Uh, and we ourselves are, like Peter says in 1 Peter 2, living stones, and we in our union with Christ, uh, which is, again is likened here to a building, we're being built up into a suitable dwelling place or temple for God's spirit. Uh, so our union with Christ is like a building. Uh, and again, just an illustration to help us catch um, some of those aspects of uh, the reality of our being united to Christ. Uh, next, again, looking back at what we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, that our union with Christ is likened unto our union with Adam. And that would reflect actually in our union with our parents. You know, Adam being our first parent, uh, our immediate parents being our, our literal parents, uh, there is a, a vitality to that. We get our life from them, our physical life. Uh, from Jesus, we get spiritual life. So there are just these various aspects in which these illustrations, these uh, uh, imageries that are used uh, can help us understand different aspects of our union with Christ. Uh, finally, and this isn't exhaustive, but these are the six that I've pointed out here. Our union with Christ is likened unto a marriage. Uh, Ephesians 5 talks in glorious language about how a husband's role in marriage is a reflection of Christ's work to sanctify his church. Okay, so we've covered definitions and we've covered some of the relevant scripture texts. Uh, and hopefully you've seen as we've gone along uh, some of the implications of of. Uh, the doctrine of union with Christ in a practical sense. Uh, but just to return, actually, to the two components of uh, John Frame's definition, uh, first off, that we are with him in his humiliation. Uh, this has uh, practical implications for us, I think, as I started to, to point out. Uh, Romans chapter 6. Does anyone remember the question that Paul asks in Romans 6, verse 1? Yep, you're, you're, you're along the, the, the right lines there. What Paul is asking in chapter 6, verse 1 is, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And his answer, which I think is what comes in, in verse 6 there, is if we've died with him, then there's no way we can continue in sin. And this is why when uh, we baptize people at uh, Calvary Bible Church, uh, as, as we put them under the water, we say, buried with him in death, and then raised to walk in newness of life. And so the fact that uh, we identify with him in his death, we are united with him in his death, means that, like Jesus talks about, uh, that we can hate our own lives. Like Paul talks about in Philippians 3, everything we used to count as gain, we can now count as loss. Uh, Paul talks there in Philippians 3 about identifying with Christ in his death and knowing him in his sufferings. Uh, Galatians 2, and I don't have, oh, I do have that one listed there, <clears throat> where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live. I'm content to be humbled 
and to be despised, to be spat upon, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, uh, to say that that man who lived in pride is no longer alive. He died with Christ. But then Paul goes on to say, uh, but the life that I now live, so there's some tension there, I no longer live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there's uh, the fact of our union with Christ and his humiliation, and Peter appeals to this too, that uh, if he who was perfect and blameless was willing to be mocked and ridiculed and reviled and didn't revile in return, then we can be content with our low position of humiliation. So just some practical implications of that first category uh, under Frame's definition of our union with Christ. Uh, any questions on that, or you want to bring up anything in which that reflects uh, practically counseling topics, uh, issues where that might be helpful? Um, I think probably this is going to be most practical in the counseling room when it comes to the need to repent. And this could be repentance unto salvation, first time, or repentance unto sanctification. Either way, and it's interesting to watch this kind of unfold in the book of Job. Uh, Job, chapter 1, verse 1, Job is righteous already, right? You see this scene in heaven where God is uh, talking with Satan and says, Job is blameless. He's perfect and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. Uh, But we also see throughout the course of Job that Job buys into some worldly thinking that his his friends put forth and he ends up charging God with wrongdoing. And we see God brings Job into a place of just total humility in order to break him. And then finally, at the very end, chapter 42, Job says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Just before that, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Uh, Now, of course, we come this far from Job, and Job, I think, is the first book written in the Bible, and we have way more revelation. But in terms of our connection with Job, in terms of needing to be humbled, and this goes even for believers, uh, if we look at the death Christ, yeah, the death Christ died, and see the humiliation of that, and say, that's my humiliation, that is a help to us in cultivating the heart of humility that is necessary for true repentance. And again, that's whether you need to repent unto salvation, first-time repentance, or repenting unto sanctification, which is just a component of our daily walk with Christ. So, uh, second category for implications uh, to go through here, we are with him in his exaltation. So not only are we with him in his humiliation, we are with him in the fact that he rose again from the dead, that he's glorified. So this is the second half of that truth in Romans 6. If we were buried with him in death, then we're raised to walk in newness of life. And so like Paul's logic there in Romans 6, we wouldn't continue to sin so that grace could abound. We would say, no, we identify with Christ in his death, and so we get to also identify with him in his life. And that means ultimate glorification so that we get to be completely without sin and we long for that day. But it also means, and this is the practical point that Paul is making there in Romans 6, that we get to not, no longer live as slaves. That slave died. We don't have to live as a slave to the law or as a slave to sin. We can live, Paul says there in Romans 6, as a slave to righteousness. New life in Christ is, is uh, what works out into that.
So, uh, again, just by way of uh, practical implications in your lives, in the counseling room, uh, this can serve in a couple of ways. One is just as sort of an indicative to remind us, uh, and Paul and others use this frequently, remind us of the fact that this is already done and accomplished. You know, end of Romans 8, that's just gloriously on display. Nothing can prevent this because it's already happened with Christ. Because of his exaltation, our exaltation is inevitable. So, uh, in a sense, we can cease striving. But, in another sense, this also, Paul uses it this way in Romans 6, is a motivation for us. Uh, we can say, you know, Christ didn't revile in return. He was... Uh, humbled, and now he's exalted, and I can uh, I can get up and strive with the strength that he supplies because my exaltation is assured. So there's freedom, uh, like the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Uh, he enlarges our heart through this, so that we can run in his ways. We see the exaltation of Christ, and it should just be a huge encouragement to us. You know, yes, he's 100% God, but he is also 100% man. Here's a man who has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of our resurrection. In his exaltation, he's perfect, separated from sin, 100% pleasing, and just the perfect picture of what our sanctification is bringing us to. Uh, so I think, is that... Uh, okay, so I'm missing a slide, actually, but it's in your notes. Uh, number three... In him and dependent on him. Uh, and I started to mention this when I brought up uh, John 15 and the imagery of the vine and the branches, uh, that apart from him we can do nothing. But in him, again, anything that we ask of the Father in faith, he will do for us. Uh, and so you'll see this work out. I was going with a, with, uh, a couple through 1 Corinthians yesterday. And Paul points to this in 1 Corinthians 1 and you guys just may know this generally, that, that you read through 1 Corinthians and you're like, this church is a mess. They are full of sin and divisions and pride. They're not loving. They're obsessed with their own gifts and want to put themselves on display. You just chapter after chapter after chapter, you're like, this church is a mess. But then in chapter 1, Paul starts out his letter, as he often does, saying, whenever I think of you, I thank God for you. Because of what he's done, he's given you everything in Christ. And so he proceeds in the letter to give them instruction and correction on this assumption that he's established already at the beginning. They're in Christ. And so whatever it is that they need to do to correct all those ways in which they're a mess as a church, they have everything they need. They're dependent on the one that they're in union with. And so they have access to every gift and so he talks a lot in um, chapters 12 to 14 about gifts. They have access to every gift in Christ that they could possibly need in order to be the kind of church. And this, of course, reflects on us as individual believers also. We have everything we need uh, in order to live life to its fullest. Because we're a branch in the vine. We just, in ourselves, I mean, not in ourselves, but by virtue of that union with Christ, we have the life we need in order to live dependently on him in a way that is pleasing to the Father. Uh, so that is the end of the first section on union with Christ. Uh, and, and easily we could have spent a whole hour on that, but uh, we wouldn't have been able to get both questions in. So any questions on union with Christ before we move on 
to synergistic sanctification. All right. Moving on, we have question 20. Uh, and again, as with uh, union, we'll start with definitions. Uh, because looking back at the question again, we want to first explain the synergistic nature of sanctification. Now, as I mentioned, that's probably, uh, if not the most pr- uh, close to it, uh, definition or, or question, I should say, on the exam that would lead you to kind of scratch your head and say, what, is, what do those words mean? Uh, and I don't know about you, but I know this is the case in my house. Whenever we come up to a word that we don't recognize, what do you guys do? What was that? How do you look it up? Google, right? So I must have done this a few years ago and found a definition that would really be bad to use on your exam. So <laughs> that's why there's a caution here. The interaction, and this is the, the definition of synergism that came up at least at that time if you Googled it, the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. So any any clue as to why that wouldn't be a definition you'd want to use? Well, in a sense, it is combined. Yeah, this is we're going to drill into the weeds a little bit here. What's that? As in, we don't do anything on our own to make it better. See, and that's that's where, and this is going to be good. It's going to be helpful to walk through this. We do, and 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 your qualification of on our own is good. We don't do anything on our own, but we do do something. And did you have a? The word greater would be a problem because if if we work, who else works? God works. And could the product of God's work be greater than the sum of God? <laughs> Absolutely not. So, and this is just kind of fun. Don't don't Google the definition. Uh, go with uh, something like this. And uh, the first, I think this is probably the first article or reference to, to appear in the notes here, Bill Barrick on sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit and scripture uh, from Master Seminary Journal back in fall of 2010. That's freely available. Uh, and I didn't actually give you a uh, URL for that, but if you Google that, you'll find it easily, and you can just download it. That That's probably just the most helpful short resource on this subject that you'll find. Uh, and this is his definition from that. Uh, so synergism, uh, and this is specifically with reference to synergistic sanctification. Three agents work together. So there you see it is a combined effort in some sense, but we're going to nuance that as we go. Three agents work together, that is, they synergize to sanctify the believer. And the three agents are the spirit, the scriptures, and the saints. The saint. Secondly, uh, just to note uh, about the word sanctification that the Hebrew and Greek words used in Scripture for sanctification have the primary meaning of separation in consecration and devotion to the service of God. And the main sense of that being separation. Any, pretty much any time you see that word, sanctified, sanctification, sanctify, uh, it's having the idea of separation. Now, it could be separation in conduct. It could be separation in Reality, we're separated theologically now from the world and the old man, and we are separated theologically unto union with Christ, but we still experience life in this fallen body. So all of these are ways in which we are sanctified, and there's an already and a not yet component a lot of times, but the essential notion there is separation. And what we're concerned with mostly in this context is 
not just consecration, but devotion to the service of God, that last part there. Uh, as we talk about synergistic sanctification, where we play a role, we don't play a role in our justification, which is in the form of sanctification that is ultimate and decided and already that we are we are separated theologically now unto Christ. That has more to do with justification. This has more to do with what we call progressive sanctification, the separation unto devotion to the service of God. Uh, oh, yeah, so I kind of jumped ahead. Uh, with this is connected the idea that what is set aside from the world for God, that's positional, should also separate itself from the world's defilement and share in God's purity. So that's practical. That's progressive sanctification. So, number three, synergistic sanctification is the Spirit's work together with the scriptures and the saint to separate the saint from the world's defilement and bring him to share in God's purity. And again, that's that's the uh, factual, theological, the indicative, working out into the practical and following the imperatives of scripture. Yeah. That has our work in there too. Yes. So it's the spirit's work together with the scriptures and the saint. So our work is the work of the saint. The scriptures are working, the spirit is working, and the Christian is working. So just, yeah, another word for saint there could just be Christian or believer. So that is our work. We are one of the agents in synergistic sanctification. Uh, and just to give some background here, when they reworked the exam, and I'm thinking this was 2015 or so, there was a theological controversy that was pretty fresh at that time uh, that I refer to just generally as antinomianism. Does that ring a bell for some of you guys? Uh, this had taken root even in some areas of the biblical counseling movement where it was uh, sort of the quietest idea, that's what it was called back in the, the day, of just our work in sanctification is just to let go and let God. Uh, that the hard work of sanctification is just to reflect and meditate on your justification, and the rest will take care of itself. Um, there was a particular influential teacher named Tulian Chavijan, grandson of Billy Graham, and he wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And that was, and there's a lot of good truth in there, but enough error that it led to the need for a question like this to say, no, the saint does participate with effort in sanctification. And really to nuance that out, because you'll see as we go further along, there is a way to go off the, the balance on the other side, and we want to avoid that. Okay, so that all is by way of explaining uh, synergistic sanctification. Next, we want to look at biblical data. How do we support this uh, from Scripture? And we're going to break this into the three roles. First, God's role. Uh, from Romans 8, verse 11, and we saw this verse already uh, once this morning. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so there's that indicative and union with Christ like we were seeing earlier, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So you see there, it's the this has already happened, but as a result, this is also going to happen. And that second part is the practical outworking of it in life. That makes sense? The first part is theological, once-for-all justification. 
The second part is progressively he is going to sanctify you through the life he's given you by justifying you. Does that make sense? So that's that's God's role to begin with, is he is going to do the work of sanctification, having already raised Jesus from the dead and united you with him. So his role continued, Philippians 1.6. Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, so that would be the beginning of your sanctification, you could think of it that way, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So there can be this thought sometimes that grace gets me started and then I take over, and that would be the wrong way to think about it. God's role lasts all the way through our perseverance. He's going to be faithful to complete that good work that he started. Again, there's a number of scriptures that I'm not going to go through them all, but could be useful to you as you think through how to answer your exam. Secondly, so we have God's role. Secondly, we have scripture's role. And I'm not sure that scripture's role is as uh, comprehensively and at the same time thoroughly unfolded uh, in so short a space as it is in Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. David writes this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, so scripture makes alive. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, so scripture gives wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And so it gives us the joy that we need to live the Christian life. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It gives us eyes to see and ears to hear everything that we need to perceive uh, about God, about life, about anything. So scripture has this incredible role, overwhelming role. And of course, you might imagine there is a lot of overlap uh, when Scripture speaks, who speaks? God. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so you could really also think of this as coming under God's role, but these texts say specifically that these are the works, the actions of Scripture. Scripture does these things. All right, so one more, I think, on Scripture's role. Uh, and this is interesting I looked at this after I had sent the PowerPoint in, and I thought I actually underlined the part that is God's role here, because Jesus is asking God to sanctify us. So you see just the overlap. Of course, the truth is playing a role in this, right? Because it's God's word that is the truth. So here we actually are seeing both God's role and Scripture's role in the same verse as Jesus is praying for us. And again, Jesus is praying this prayer, John 17, the night before he goes to the cross, and he specifically uh, makes mention of the fact he's praying not just for his own immediate group of disciples, but he's praying for everyone. He's praying these things for everyone that would believe in Jesus through that word. So he's praying for us, praying for us that night in the garden. And Jesus' prayers are effective prayers. And he prays for us even now. Uh, we know from the book of Hebrews, he always lives to make intercession for us. And so he effectively is causing the work of scripture to be effective uh, in its role in our synergistic sanctification. So that's uh, God's role, scripture's role, and you've got other texts that highlight scripture's role there that I won't go through. Thirdly, we have man's role in synergistic sanctification. Uh, and this first text, just realize that it is immediately preceded by Romans 8, verse 11, 
where we looked at God's role. Next, we find uh, an aspect of man's role. Uh, but again, actually, at the beginning, uh, we see God's role here. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Oh, actually... Oh, I just have that duplicated here. Sorry, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. And so that's the language of duty or obligation, right? We are debtors. So that just gets immediately to the fact that man does have a role in this. Man has an obligation. We are debtors, not to the flesh. And so this this idea peels back to chapter 6, where Paul talks about either we're slaves to sin and the law, or we're slaves to righteousness. We're going to be slave one way or the other. So we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, and now we have here active verb, active verb. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so here is man's role. On the basis of God's role, we put our sin to death. We turn away from sin. And that automatically means, Paul is saying it's one or the other. You're either a slave of sin or Romans 6, you're a slave of righteousness. So we turn away from our sin, we put our sin to death, and we turn towards God's righteousness. So we see, this, we see the language of duty, we see the language of obligation, the language of effort there. Uh, man's role continued here, and more emphasis here in Hebrews 12:14 on uh, effort and the relationship of that to uh, reality, its importance. Uh, the Hebrews writer says, "Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." So uh, we wouldn't want to take from this that it all depends on us, and this is why I put man's role third. Uh, God is going to be faithful to complete the good work. Scripture will do its work on the basis of Jesus' constant intercession for us. But if we don't do our work, it actually means that, that those first two things aren't at work. Because if God and the Scriptures are at work, then we will strive. We will strive. And if we don't, then we won't see the Lord. So that could be unsettling. Uh, which is why you had that whole movement of antinomianism to begin with. You don't want to fall off the beam in thinking it de- all depends on you. Don't hear me saying that. It doesn't all depend on you. Uh, and we'll see what happens when you start to go in that direction in your thinking. But there is a theological category because Scripture says it, that if we don't strive, we won't see the Lord. Make sense? Anyone too unsettled by that? Okay. All right. Uh, thirdly, and here again, I mean, this language is just inescapable in multiple places. Second Peter 1, uh, starting with verse 5. For this reason, make every effort. So just the, the language of effort, duty, responsibility uh, can't be mistaken. It is there. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And look at how practical this is. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And what is the, the end of the law? Well, it's Christ. But the fulfillment of the law is love, right? Galatians 5, that the whole law can be fulfilled in one word, that you love one another. See how Peter uh, culminates our effort in sanctification with the outcome of love. Now, does that mean we can produce love in ourselves? 
Well, in a sense, yes, but not by ourselves. Again, God's role precedes ours in this, fuels it, motivates it, causes it, brings it about, makes it effective. But strive and make every effort if you don't. And Peter goes on here actually to talk about the connection between this and assurance, that if you do these things, then you'll have assurance, is what Peter says in context here. Uh, Okay, so we've looked at the explanation of... That's interesting. Special offer. There we go. All right, so uh, we've looked at the explanation of synergistic sanctification, both in terms of definitions and in terms of biblical data. Um, so next we're going we're gonna to move on to describe the relationship between God's grace and moral effort in the Christian life. Any questions before we move on to that? This is where we'll get to the need for balance and what happens when you're out of balance in this. Uh, okay, so I already explained some of this, um, but let me just start by saying misunderstanding the relationship between God's grace and moral effort in the Christian life tends to lead to imbalance and neglect in one direction or another, which, of course, we're going to want to avoid. Uh, and if it helps, you can flip to the page, and it's just going to be a page or two to the right, uh, where these imbalances are reflected in some charts from Stuart Scott's chapter in Christ-Centered Biblical Counseling. Uh, so those are visual aids. They're a little blurry. Um, I think I think Stuart actually sent these to me before the book was published, so I could probably get them updated. But uh, if you like a visual representation, this gives a good visual representation of what tends to happen, especially the big arrow on the right there, where you focus on my work or my strength, Uh, things tend to fall off on the opposite side. Uh, So first, we must avoid imbalance and neglect in terms of an overemphasis on our obligations, our practice, and a corresponding underemphasis on gazing upon Christ. Uh, Another way of saying that is we don't want to just focus on the Bible's imperatives. We want to catch the fact that pretty much everywhere there is an imperative it's preceded pretty closely usually by an indicative. There's a reason for that. The indicatives do precede the imperatives. We want to gaze on Christ as the ground and purpose and goal and what makes it possible for us to then turn to the imperatives and say, what must we do? Uh, so, And then you see the emphasis there on the chart in the air on the right, my work, my strength. Uh, and these practical effects that you see in your notes and on the slide here, uh, this kind of imbalance tends to lead to the specific results listed here. That, first off, the gospel is applied only in the narrowest sense. And what that means is, and this is often reflected in kind of the catchphrase, once saved, always saved, uh, which is the error that Paul is addressing in, uh, at least it's it's connected with the error Paul addresses in Romans 6, if, if, I, if I got my sticker in my Bible and I'm saved, then I can just live however I want, right? And that's the gospel applied just in the narrowest sense. It's my get-out-of-hell-free card, uh, and it doesn't have any implication for the rest of my life. Uh, is that right? No, I'm sorry. I've got that backward. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, that was confusing. Uh Sinclair Ferguson gets to this actually in his book, The Whole Christ, that there is a common root to both imbalances. 
And when the gospel is applied only in the narrow sense here, it's similar. So this is that same idea of once saved, always saved, but then I take over. So you could go one of two directions with that. You can say like Romans 6, I'm going to sin so that grace may abound. Or you can say grace got me saved, now I'm going to go to work. Does that make sense? Sorry, I confused you <laughs> at first there. Is that clear now? Hopefully. I'm seeing some blank stares. Uh, when that, when the gospel is applied only in the narrow sense of it gets me started, now you just go away from all those indicatives and you say, show me what I have to do and I'm going to take care of the rest on my own. And that's, that's what leads to number two, self-righteousness. We, we probably, I don't know if I would say most often, but the other tends to go with that, self-loathing. Uh, so you just, you work and you work and you work and you work and you try to do it enough, but you always know it's never enough. And so it goes with that impulse towards self-loathing. Number three, it goes with pride, a performance-driven life. Legalism and moralism tend to be the effects of this. And in this kind of case, it's easy to carry on counseling without true salvation because you've got someone in front of you who's going to try to check all the boxes. And this is, it's a hard, it's a hard one to discern. Uh, but the way to come back around to it is to revisit uh, what do you think? You know, what is always going through your mind as you approach the list of your duties and obligations? Are you thinking primarily of your role or are you identifying with Christ in his humiliation and his exaltation and saying it's my joy to work these things out? Uh, and if it's not the latter, then it could well be the former, that there's this overemphasis on the obligations, the duties for the believer. Uh, on the other side, we must avoid imbalance or neglect uh, that takes the form of an underemphasis on our obligations or practice uh, and an overemphasis on our position. And you see in the graphical representation, it's an overemphasis on God's work to the exclusion of our work. Uh, and what happens in this case is the the gospel is applied in a narrow and broad sense. And what that means may not be the most helpful language. I mean, may need to update this. But what that means is I'm going to say my justification has importance, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. But that latter category, it's just a matter of dwelling on indicatives. I, I do care about how salvation works it out in my, or how justification works out in my sanctification. But all that is is a matter of constantly returning to thinking about what Christ has already accomplished for me. That's all I have to do. I don't have to pay attention to the imperatives. Christ did the imperatives for me. That makes sense? So when you do that, then the gospel becomes all about grace. It's reductionistic. We see, you know, the appeal of the New Testament writers frequently is to our need to do things. They call the law that we have to obey things like James says, the law of liberty, the royal law. Uh, Paul talks about fulfilling the law by loving in Galatians 5. There is still a place for law. It's not the same as the Old Testament law that had a huge function of condemning. That was one of the primary roles of the law, the, the, the law given through Moses. And that's a major theme in Scripture. But we don't want to lead that in, uh, into us thinking, now we jettison the law entirely. That's not the way the New Testament treats law. So we don't want to just lose that wing of the airplane, so to speak. We have in, in the New Testament, we have law and grace. Uh, thirdly, 
there's no real effort involved. Uh, you know, the effort of thinking about your justification isn't as practical as the New Testament tries to get us to be in terms of pursuing our sanctification. So there is no real effort through Christ's power, which, fourthly, results in stunted growth or even in license, fleshly living. Uh, oh, I didn't advance to that slide. So, C, thirdly, thankfully, there is a right kind of balance. And as you see in the graphical representation there, that results in all kinds of good things. Uh, first off, the, the gospel in a narrow sense is unfolded and practically applied into gospel in a broad sense. Gospel in a broad sense is unfolded and applied into gospel practice. And so it's not just a matter of one truth that you're constantly thinking about. Now, having been fueled by the gospel. So this is what Paul talks about when he talks about striving with all of the energy. Colossians 1, that God works in him. That's this. The gospel has an effect on every part of life. And you say, with the indicatives, with the truths that Christ has already accomplished this, that God is doing his work and scripture is doing his work, with trust in that faithfulness, I'm going to look at what scripture says, and by faith, I'm going to turn my feet and I'm going to do it. I'm going to open my mouth, I'm going to do it. I'm going to renew my mind. I'm going to bring myself, by God's grace, by faith, which is not of myself, it's of him, I'm going to put it into practice by faith in practical ways. Leading to, secondly, new worship, identity, new mindset, and fruitful service. Thirdly, the right motivations and the right goal, the right end, God's glory. Fourthly, dependent work to renew the mind, to plan changes, and to choose Christ. And then fifthly, kind of connecting back to union with Christ, this is what it looks like to abide in Christ. So again, just the interrelationship, thinking back to John 15, if he is the vine and we are the branches, we get to abide in him, remembering that apart from him we can do nothing, but with him we can be pruned, we can enjoy that life and live out that life in dependence on him, having everything we could possibly need. All right, let's see here. I think that's it in terms of broad explanation of these things and their biblical bases. Uh, I have a few quotes to close us with uh, here that I think gives just some helpful perspective on applying these things as we go away from here. Any questions before we get to those? So the first one, did I skip that? Here we go. Okay, so this comes, I think this is from Bill Barrick, uh, from that article. That on the, in virtue of all of this, in, in response to all of this, this is just sort of a way of thinking about this. When invited to participate in a manner of living that belonged to pre-salvation days, believers need to respond, I regret that I cannot attend because I died recently. And that's just... Uh, sort of a, a pithy way of talking about what Peter says when he says, the time that is past suffices to live like the Gentiles want to live. They're astounded when you don't want to live with them in pursuing the things of this world. Why? They're surprised by that. But we respond like this says, no, I died. The time that is past suffices for living like that. I have new life to live. Next, and this just comes from 
uh, Romans 8, uh, the next few verses after what we looked at already, as we engage in that effort, that mortification of sin, putting our sin to death, it's so good to see Paul's logical flow of thought connecting all these things. As the Spirit leads us to do that, and that's God's work and the Scripture's work again, and then we put our sin to death by faith. Verse 16, this is the Spirit himself testifying with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So just that connection of assurance and you have life, and one of the key ways in which you see Life, evidence of being in the vine as a branch is as suffering comes and on that occasion, rather than moving away from your father, you move towards him and you put your sin to death and you enjoy that fellowship, that union that you have with him. Finally, just a little bit more of a warning. Uh, and for you, for your counselees, uh, as you think about applying these things, kind of what I was saying about the text from Hebrews, that if we don't strive we won't see him. Uh, it says, if God's agency and sanctification does not arouse and direct ours, if it does not create the desire for holiness and strenuous efforts to attain it, we may be sure that we are not its subjects. So, uh, again, not to dissuade you, but to compel you to uh, drive yourself with God's help deeper into these things. Uh, gazing on Christ and letting that have its full effect in following the commands of Scripture by faith so that you can enjoy that union that you have with Christ. All right, well, let's close with a word of prayer, and I'll be here for a few minutes if you guys have questions or follow-up conversation. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these glorious truths. Lord, we know that our time uh, covering them does not nearly do them justice. Um, Father, I pray that you would help uh, your people in this room to uh, reflect on these truths in a way that builds them up and gives them hope and gives them insur- assurance. And Father, as we've covered, that it wouldn't just be a matter of reflecting on them, but Father, that as they consider their ways, as the psalmist says, they would turn their feet to your testimonies, that they would hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Father, we thank you for the ministries that you've given to us, for the opportunity to study this content. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to keep mindful of the fact that uh, having understood perhaps to a greater degree that that increases our accountability before you. Uh, And Father, help us to rest at the same time knowing that you have loved us and you have given this to us as a purpose and that you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it uh, until the day of Christ Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.